Father, may I praise you all. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. As usual, I've edited and cut and pasted the quotes. Last week we asked why so many of the people who are saved have to spend so much time in purgatory. We answered this is because they never made up their mind in this life to truly become holy. They never really made up their mind to really strive for union with God in this life. And that in spite of the fact that it's actually doable. They never really made up their minds to get serious about holiness, even though it's doable. And then we, we uh, turn to the teaching of that great doctrine of the interior life, St. John of the Cross, and consider a few very practical means for growing in holiness, a few very practical means to attain to union with God in this life. We saw that St. John of the Cross warned that, quote, the evils which the soul receives come from the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is the least difficult enemy. The devil is the hardest to understand. The flesh is the most tenacious of all, and its assaults continue for so as long as the old man exists. In order to conquer any one of these three enemies, it is necessary to conquer all three. And if one is weakened, the other two are weakened. And when all three are conquered, no more war remains within the soul. Close quote. Then following St. John, we took a look at three obstacles that the world places in the path of union with God. We saw that the first obstacle is inordinate affection for any person. We saw that the second obstacle is disorderly affection for worldly goods. We saw that the third obstacle is the real or apparent bad example of our brethren. In regards to the first two obstacles, inordinate affection for any person or worldly good, we saw that St. John tells us to avoid every attachment, by which he means every love that binds the heart in a way that is not according to the will of God or in an exaggerated manner. And we saw that the reason for these warnings is simply because union with God in this life requires a heart that's free from such attachments. It requires a heart that's free to truly love God. Such attachments draw us away from God. Such attachments actually impede our union with Him. In regards to the third obstacle, the real or apparent bad example of our brethren, we saw that we had to be very careful not to make false interpretations of our neighbor's actions. We saw that until someone is completely purified by a thorough knowledge of his own weaknesses and filled with charity, he's very subjective. And as a consequence of that, he will not see people as they actually are, but rather as a reflection of what he is in himself. We also saw that God allows us to see others to fall into sin, not only so that we can practice patience and charity, but also so that we might learn from their example. So we might reflect that even if we are not guilty of the same, uh, same weaknesses right now, it's only by the grace of God. We could easily fall into similar sins at a later date. After all, how many times have we seen one of those TV preachers who just mercilessly hammers on sinners, later on, fall in exactly the sins they were so merciless about. We saw that St. John of the Cross warns us that even if we lived among angels, we won't find peace unless we mind our own business. And in even stronger terms, he warns that, quote, even if you were to dwell among devils, 
God still requires you to live oblivious of their shortcomings, keeping your soul pure and holy in the sight of God, being completely undisturbed by what is transpiring all around you. Close quote, St. John of the Cross. I also mentioned that I have the privilege of knowing a number of people who are holy in the formal sense of the word. And I don't know a single one of those who spends any significant time on the Catholic blogs or keeping track of the chaos in the church. We saw that if someone is in a position of authority and responsibility, he needs to keep himself informed insofar as his duty requires, but no more. We don't want to do any more than that since this is very dangerous. I give this warning a lot. It's almost a refrain to me. It's doable, uh, but very few people seem to hate it. Evidently, they know something that St. John of the Cross didn't know. Holiness is doable, but there aren't any shortcuts. So much for the review. Let's continue with the teaching of St. John of the Cross as to overcoming obstacles to union with God in this life. Today, we'll consider his warnings about the devil. St. John of the Cross, quote, These three cautions should be used by him that aspires to perfection in order that he might free himself from the devil, his second enemy. To this end, it must be noted that among the many wiles used by the devil to deceive spiritual persons, the most ordinary is that of deceiving them under an appearance of what is good and not under an appearance of what is evil. For he knows if they recognize evil, they will hardly touch it. And thus thou must ever have misgivings concerning that which seems good, but is not commanded thee by obedience. Security and success in this manner come from taking proper counsel in it. <coughs> Among the many wiles used by the devil to deceive spiritual persons, the most ordinary is that of deceiving them under an appearance of what is good and not under an appearance of what is evil. For the devil knows if they recognize evil, they will hardly touch it. This is really important to recognize. The devil uses different tactics, different temptations on those who are really striving for holiness. Oh, sure, he'll throw some of the common, really carnal ones up there once in a while, just, you know, see if, see if he gets a hit. But that's not really how he works. Although we don't have uh, time in this sermon to get a lot of detail on it, it's important for everyone who's serious about his holiness to have a, a working knowledge of these tactics. In that regard, I can't recommend highly enough two books written by Father Timothy Gallagher, OMV. These books explain in detail and with brilliant examples St. Ignatius of Loyola's Rules for the Discernment of Spirits. So you have Timothy Gallagher, The Discernment of Spirits, an Ignatian Guide for Every Everyday Living, and Spiritual Consolation, an Ignatian Guide for the Greater Discernment of Spirits. The Discernment of Spirits and Spiritual Consolation by Timothy Gallagher OMV. And there's also an excellent 16-part series online where he's interviewed on the discernment of spirits. It's really, really a good series. Just skip the first one and start with number two, The Life of St. Ignatius. Father Timothy Gallagher OMV, The Discernment of Spirits. Let's turn back to St. John the Cross. Since disobedience made angels into devils, since disobedience is at the very root of mankind's fall and subsequent problems, not surprisingly, St. John's first caution has to do with obedience. And all of what we're going to say here has to be understood as pertaining to the legitimate commands 
of legitimate superiors. So we're talking about legitimate commands of legitimate superiors, not just everything that comes down the road. We'll talk about that slightly later. Blessed Lucas of St. Joseph explains the importance of obedience in the spiritual life. Quote, Obedience is a tribute we owe to God, the Creator and the Supreme Legislator. To obey God is an act of justice and an acknowledgement of His infinite power and majesty. All great souls, because they are righteous and just, are also obedient. Perfection without obedience is impossible. Redemption was accomplished through the perfect obedience of Jesus to His Heavenly Father. Simple obedience is directly opposed to the action of the diabolical spirit. Small wonder then that St. John should recommend obedience as the necessary and indestructible armor against the evil spirits, since the motto of Satan and his angels is non servium, I will not serve. Close quote. So the battle cry of the devil is, I will not serve. It's the exact opposite of that loving cry made by our Lord as he laid there, sweating blood, being crushed down by the sins of the world. Father, not my will, but thine be done. Not my will, but thine be done. St. Alphonsus points out that nothing but self-will can separate us from God. Neither all the men upon earth nor all the devils in hell can deprive us of the grace of God. Nothing but self-will can separate us from God. Not my will, but thine be done. St. Bernard says, let self-will cease and there will be no hell. Not my will, but thine be done. St. John Climacus says that he who despises the authority of a superior wishes to follow his own will will not be attacked by the demons because his will has become demonic. Not my will, but thine be done. St. Alphonsus says if you wish to become a saint and enjoy continual peace, seek to overcome as much as possible your own will. Not my will, but thine be done. Blessed Lucas of St. Joseph points out that in chapter 58 of the book of the prophet Isaiah, we read of the Israelites who fasted and offered many excellent sacrifices to God. Yet God was not pleased with those actions. They complained to the Lord, Why have we fasted and thou hast not regarded us? Why have we humbled our souls and thou hast not taken notice? And the Lord answered them, Behold, in the day of your fast, your own will is found. It's as if he said to them, I know that you have fasted and offered me many victims, but you have not done these things in submission to my will, but only because they were pleasing to you. And although this certainly applies across the board, it should be a serious top topic of meditation for traditionalists. Everyone should look inside himself. Everyone should check his own heart and be brutally honest about his own motivations. It is undeniable that objectively speaking, this liturgy, the ceremonies, the music, most particularly this way of receiving Holy Communion and for the priest, of, of helping the priest enter more deeply in the mystery of the Holy Sacrifice, the Mass. It's undeniable that objectively speaking, all this is much more worthy of God than what transpires in the ordinary parish. That's not even debatable. But although, objectively speaking, all this is much more worthy of God, it doesn't fall for a second that that means that we are. It doesn't at all mean that we are somehow exempt from ever being accused by God of being guilty 
the very same offenses as the Israelites of Isaiah's day. I know you fasted and offered me many beautiful liturgies, but you've not done these things in submission to my will, but only because they were pleasing to you. Are we really striving to do God's will? Are we really striving to become holy and pleasing to Him? Are those our primary motives? Are we just doing things because they suit us, because they're pleasing to us? Don't think for a second this doesn't pertain to the priests just as much as the faithful. Even more so, in fact. The priest has to look in his own heart and make sure his motives are pure. And that they aren't something like, I want to look good on the altar. I want to be kowtowed to by the faithful, which you get in the traditional movement. I want to be filled with this attitude that at least I'm not one of those Novus Ordo priests, etc., etc., etc. What about the six strand sacrifices that are not according to the will of God? They're not in union with the Pope and the local ordinary. That's SPX, independent chapels, etc., etc. Everyone should look inside himself. Everyone should check his own heart, be brutally honest about his own motivations. Everyone should make absolutely sure he's never going to hear God say to him, I know you've fasted and offered me many beautiful liturgies, but you've not done these things in submission to my will, but only because they were pleasing to you. And as we said, we're only speaking of obedience to legitimate commands given by legitimate superiors. Blessed Lucas of St. Joseph explains what kind of commands are not legitimate. We must obey the commands of legitimate superior at all times, with the exception of the following cases. If the order is unjust, if the command is contrary to natural law, if the command is contrary to the law of God, if the command is contrary to the law of the church. In each instance, it's clearly to be unreasonable, perhaps even sinful, to obey such a command, thus blessed Lucas. So we must obey the commands of a legitimate superior at all times, with the exception of fallen cases, if the order is unjust. And that includes that he doesn't have the power to actually command it, because it depends on the power of the superior as well. If the order is unjust, if the command is contrary to the natural law, the command is contrary to the law of God, or if the command is contrary to the law of the church. In each case, it's clear to be unreasonable, perhaps even sinful, to obey such a command. Blessed Lucas continues, quote, Such orders have exception to ordering commands of obedience. And since this is true, we must make certain we're not misguided of our self-will or self-love when a command not to our liking is given. St. John's second caution has to do with seeing that in regards to his legitimate commands, legitimate spirit, whoever he may be, and whatever his faults may be, stands in the place of God. Quote, Observe that the devil, the enemy of humility, meddles greatly herein. Keep thyself, therefore, with great vigilance from considering the superior's character, his ways, or his habits, or any of his other characteristics. Close quote. Well, that's actually very easy to understand. When a postman hands you a letter, you don't stand there studying him, fretting over whether he's good or bad, whether he's talented or experienced, whether he's someone you're attracted to or not. None of that's important. You just read the letter. So it is with the legitimate commands of our legitimate superiors. Once we see, it takes the light of faith to see this, because just because somebody's your superior doesn't mean that he's superior. <laughs> okay, that, those two things don't go together either. Okay, but once we see by the light of faith that in regards to our superior, God says, this person is my representative, then we can also see why we have to obey his legitimate commands, irregardless of whether or not 
We like that representative. Whether or not that representative is good or bad, challenged experience, inexperienced, someone we're attracted to or not. We can just keep ourselves focused on the message that God has delivered to us and not on the personal qualities of that messenger. We'll close this part of the sermon with a beautiful meditation by Blessed Lucas on this particular point. The most admirable example of obedience can be found in the Holy Eucharist. Here our Lord's obedience is fathomless. Consider our Lord's perfect obedience in the Holy Eucharist to all priests. The good and the bad, the worthy and unworthy. And who can be worthy to be a priest except Christ? Whatever temptation against obedience we face, we can find the answer and the cure in simple, humble meditation before the Blessed Sacrament, where our Lord will speak to our souls. My child, do not complain. Do not be disturbed. Learn subjection and silence from me. Do the, do the characteristics of your spirit displease you? Do you think that all who handle me in the Holy Eucharist are pleasing to me? What will become of the world if I only obeyed good priests? Can you endure even a little for me? Rise and take up your cross with joy, since it will secure an everlasting reward for you. Obey, suffer, and be silent according to the example I'm giving you in the most blessed sacrament. Will you not love me? even as I have loved you. In the tabernacle we find the perfect example of perfect obedience, complete self-denial, silence, and sacrifice. Come here frequently and especially in critical moments. Here you'll be strengthened with the grace of God. You'll be freed from the deceits of the enemy. Your actions will merit the most exalted glory in heaven." Close quote. St. John's third caution has to do with humility and charity. Quote, Strive ever to humble thy heart in word and in deed, rejoicing at the good of others as at thy own, and desiring that others be preferred to thyself in all things, and this with all thy heart. In this way thou shalt overcome evil with good, and shalt cast the devil far from thee, and shalt have joy of heart. And strive thou to practice this most with respect to those who least attract thee. And know that if thou practice this not, Thou shalt not attain to true charity, neither shalt thou make progress therein. And love ever to be taught by all men, rather than desire to teach him that is least of all." Close quote. The late great Father Dion has some penetrating observations regarding humility. God made us out of nothing. Of ourselves, who are absolutely nothing. We had nothing to do with our coming into being, and since we'll live forever, either in heaven or in hell, we can have nothing to do with our going out of existence. We're absolutely and completely dependent on Almighty God, not only for our existence, but for every single thing that is needed for or flows from that existence. Everything we have, every gift, every talent, every ability, even the very air we breathe depends on Him. We can do nothing of ourselves. St. Paul asks, What is thou that thou hast not received? And thou hast received it, why dost thou boast as if thou had not received it? Our divine Lord says, without me, you can do nothing. 
Humility is based on acting according to the truth of what we really are in God's sight. If we're humble, there's no posing, there's no pretense, no attempts to appear better than we really are, to be something that we're really not. And once we understand that, it's easy to understand how someone can be humiliated. Suppose, for example, someone was embarrassed and humiliated because in front of a crowd he fell flat on his face. Why did he find that humiliating? Because he feels somehow this clumsiness is beneath his dignity. He can't bear having all these people thinking he really is that clumsy. So he's humiliated because the person who is not humble likes to appear smarter, more clever, more coordinated than he actually is. In other words, he likes to present a false version of who he really is for the general public. But that's not really humble. So humility is based on acting according to the truth of what we really are in God's sight. And with that in mind, let's consider another one of the truths about each one of us. We don't speak of Our Lady, of course. But each one of us is an actual sinner. Each one of us is a sinner, and that means that each one of us actually deserves to be punished. Now, everyone should let that sink in, because for some reason, many people don't seem to have thought much about that. Because each one of us has sinned, each one of us deserves to be punished. And that means if we find ourselves complaining at contradictions, misunderstandings, corrections, adversities, trials, sicknesses, troubles, problems, if we cry and moan and troubles, it's because we're not yet sufficiently humble. It's because we're not shaping our conduct in accord with the truth, which is that we actually deserve to be punished. Just compare our conduct to our Lord, who suffered crosses, trials, contradictions, denials, slights, ingratitude, persecution, suffering, and even that terrible death. And yet he resented nothing. He was humble. He didn't use his divine power to escape a bit of it. He didn't use his divine power to alleviate his suffering in the slightest. He accepted it all on our behalf. He accepted the cross as we should accept it. He accepted and suffered all that he suffered as if he were deserving of it all, when in fact, we're deserving of it all. <coughs> but there's also a positive aspect to humility. Humility is based on truth. And the whole truth about anyone is that God has given him undeniable gifts and talents, both of nature and grace. And being humble doesn't mean that we deny the gifts of nature and grace that Almighty God has given us. If someone has a great pitching arm, and you say, hey, you're a really great pitcher, and he says, no, I'm not. That's not humble. That's just stupid. Of course you are. If you're a great pitcher, you're a great pitcher. If a woman has a great singing voice, and, and you say, wow, you have a really great voice. She says, no, I sound like a frog. No, you actually don't sound like a frog. Humility is based on the truth. And the truth is that God had given that woman a truly beautiful voice, which means she shouldn't deny it. But she should attribute it to its source, which is God. On the other hand, the guy who takes personal credit for his talents is like the armored car driver, moving gold from one bank to another, who drives by his girlfriend's house and then pretends that all the gold in his truck is his own. And wouldn't he be an absolute fool to pretend, because he's driving a truck full of gold, that he's somehow better than the truck driver that's driving a garbage truck? It's quite possible the garbage truck driver takes a bigger paycheck home at the end of the week than the bank truck driver, even though he's carrying around a much less impressive load. But in either case, the load isn't theirs. 
It'll be the same in heaven. Persons without many gifts, with very little talent or looks or abilities or achievements, may very well get a much greater reward because of the humble way they glorified God with what they had than the reward that's given to the person who had all the talents, all the looks, all the ability, but attributed his gifts to himself so stupidly and sought and basked in his own glory. That's really important to realize. Persons without many gifts or with very little talent or looks or ability or achievements may very well end up at a much higher place in heaven because of the humble way they glorified God with what they had. But the person to whom God poured out all these talents, looks, ability, but attributed all to himself, gave himself the glory, will be in a much lower place. In other words, humility doesn't in any way mean denying the gifts, the talents and abilities Almighty God has given us, but it does mean that we give the glory to God. It means we use those gifts not for our glory, not for getting others to praise us and look at us, but to be useful to ourselves and others, and so doing, to give glory to God. If we're humble, we use our gifts of nature and grace to do good. We use them to spread God's kingdom, to promote His glory. That's Father Dio. There's a lot more that can be said there, but hopefully everybody here has a much clearer understanding of humility and its importance. Let's quickly consider how humility defeats the devil while leading to charity. Blessed Lucas of St. Joseph, quote, Nothing is more confusing to the devil than sincere act of humility, which, as St. John teaches, is more meritorious than the performance of great miracles. Each sincere act of humility increases our future glory and is intensely pleasing to God. There's nothing more despicable to the devil than the glory of God and the salvation of souls. Therefore, he's completely thwarted in his attempts to seduce souls, who in the moment of temptations towards pride perform acts of humility. The more frequently we humble ourselves before God, the more impotent the devil becomes, the more our soul becomes filled with joy and peace. The more frequently we humble ourselves before God, the weaker the devil becomes in attacking us, and the more our soul gets filled with joy and peace. This is what St. John meant when he said, unless you're truly humble, you will not arrive at perfect charity. Humility is the foundation on which we build self-renunciation. When our self-renunciation has reached its perfection, we arrive at the point where the soul lives not for itself, but only for the love and glory of God. And to live only for the love and glory of God is to arrive at perfect charity. Close quote. So humility is a foundation on which we build self-renunciation. When our self-renunciation has reached its perfection, we arrive at the point where the soul lives not for itself, but only for the love and glory of God. And to live only for the love and glory of God is to arrive at perfect charity. And it's doable. It's doable. Now before we close, we'll quickly mention another method for warding off demonic attacks taught by St. John of the Cross, and that's anagogical acts. For all you Carmelites out there, you can find more details, and there are a lot more in his fifth spiritual saying. In brief, the Holy Doctor explains that, quote, as soon as we are conscious of the first movement or attack of any vice, we should meet it with an act of charity and raise our affectionate union with God, close quote. So we make the strongest act of charity, the strongest act of love of God, the moment we detect a temptation. An upshot of that is from the devil's point of view, we've suddenly vanished, just like we've been beamed up, because he has no access to that. We're gone. This takes some practice. 
Beginners have to practice this and use the other weapons we've spoken of before, calling on the precious blood to wash over us, imploring Our Lady's help, using binding prayers, etc. Uh, one final note on warding off uh, demonic attacks. Father Chad Ripperger has put together a brilliant work uh, called Deliverance Prayers for the Lady. Now this isn't so you can set up shop, but so you can pray these prayers over yourself and anyone over whom you have actual spiritual authority, which would be like your children, God's children. Okay. Deliverance Prayers for the Lady, Father Chad Ripperger. Let's close. Let's close. Today we look, took a look at three warnings of St. John of the Cross regarding obstacles that the devil places, that the obstacles that the devil places in the path of union with God. The first warning pertains to the absolute importance of obedience to legitimate commands. The second warning pertains to the absolute importance of disregarding the personal qualities of legitimate superiors. And the third warning pertains to the absolute importance of practicing humility. And everything we've heard today is doable. It's doable by everyone who truly wants to be a saint, who truly wants Christ to rule as the king of their heart. It's doable.